If you have a Bible, if you would please turn it to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. We are concluding our series today on the Sermon on the Mount. And we are now going to read for you from Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, would you take your holy word and would you change us by it? The grass withers and the flowers fade but your word stands forever. May it change our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The Sermon on the Mount is the most famous sermon ever given in history, and we've looked at it week after week since this fall, and today we come to the final, the last, the concluding sermon on the Sermon on the Mount. And this is not just a concluding sermon on the Sermon on the Mount, but this is the concluding sermon on what is the conclusion to a sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus tries to make one very, very important point in the final verses of chapter 7. Namely, he summarizes for us everything that he tried to say in the preceding three chapters, chapters 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7 of Matthew. He wants us, whether we are secular, irreligious, never been in the church before, never interested in the things of God, or we are religious, or we are struggling within our own selves to understand what is truth. He wants all three of us, all three of these people, the secular, the religious, the independents, to know what the heart of the gospel is. C.S. Lewis once wrote a, an essay, and he said that he wanted his audience to experience the undeceptions of the topic about which he spoke. And in the same way, Jesus is in a sense saying, friends, listen, hear me. Are you with me? Jesus says, I want you to see the undeceptions of the kingdom. And so he shows us what our three potential deceivers are. What are our enemies? And he says there are three of them. First, we have overt enemies in verses 13 and 14. 
Second, we have covert enemies in verses 15 to 23. And lastly, we have inverted enemies in verses 24 to 27. Overt enemies, which entrance will you choose? Covert enemies, which influence do you follow? Inverted enemies, which kind of house will you build? Hmm? Let's look at the text together. First, our overt enemies. The image Jesus gives us here is of two gates, two roads, two ways of choosing. And he asks a very simple question. He says, which way will you choose? <clears throat> will you choose the wide way, the way that the majority choose? It's easy. It's easy. Or will you choose the narrow gate, the way that is hard? Jesus here undoubtedly is speaking about conversion. You know that word, we use it a lot in the church, conversion. It's when you make a decision, or rather, you are amazed at how beautiful Jesus is, and that you know that he is the only way that you can possibly be saved from your sins, and all of your self-saving strategies outwear their welcome for the first time in your life. And you see that this Nazarene, this Jewish carpenter, who was born of God, born of woman under the law to redeem those of us who live in the law out from under it. And Jesus came so that you and I might have life. And choosing to follow that way is hard. And it's hard because it requires something called repentance. And repentance is turning away from the direction that you're going and walking toward the commands of the Lord. And the first command that God gives us is believe in me. And when you do, that is called a conversion. Some of us can tell stories. They know the date, the hour, the time of their conversion. Some of us were born as covenant children to Christian parents. We don't know the time or date when we, were, when we became Christians, but we know that we trust in Christ as our Savior. It's a beautiful thing. You may be on the narrow way. You may have gone through the narrow gate. Or you may be here and you're not real sure yet. Listen, the narrow gate is hard. It is not easy. But the good news is, it's not really your decision to make, is it? Because when the gospel gives birth to truth in your life, when you see that against the backdrop of an infinitely holy God, you cannot merit his love for you, he gives it to you freely. And how do you know that? Because as we're going to see this week in the Good Friday service, he lays down his life for you. And as we'll see on Sunday... He rose again from the dead to conquer sin and death for you. Interpreters throughout history have interpreted this narrow gate to be about conversion. And this is undoubtedly what Jesus means here. Are you a Christian? Once you go through this narrow gate... Then it says there's a road, there's a way, and that road is hard. There are two images here. There's the gate, that is, entrance into the Christian life. There's a road that you walk down, that is, the consistent discipleship in your life after you're a Christian. 
They are part and parcel of the same thing, namely seeing the beauty of Jesus all of your days. Please stay with me and hear this. But to walk down the road of discipleship is increasingly difficult. And friends, we know many, many people who believe that you are saved by grace, but somehow you are made more holy by good works, as if you could. The same way that you became a Christian is the same way you grow in grace. Namely, you come to a brokenness about your sin, and you look to Jesus as the only way to save you. The gospel is not just the way into the Christian life. It is the entirety of the Christian life. It is part of the DNA of our church. It is part of the DNA of every new members class. It is the DNA even of every sermon you ever hear preached from this pulpit. The gospel is not just the nugget of truth that you get when you become a Christian. Got it. I understand Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead. But it's actually the way you proceed, the way you grow in holiness. But there's a, there are huge temptations to take you off the path, this narrow path. Just this week when I was on vacation, I met a man who... He, we were talking about um, various philosophical things in Colorado, and he said to me, I love talking about philosophy and other religions. I, I can talk about them all day long. I think they're great. Just don't push your religion on me. We can talk about it all we want. That's great. But don't challenge me. The only one who can challenge me is me. And I said, well, that must be really convenient must be great to win every argument. Because if the only person that can challenge you is you, you're never going to be challenged because you're just a reflection of yourself. You will endlessly be self-justifying. And the conversation went on, and he believes that every religion, of course, is legit, and that Christianity is just one manifestation of it. Islam is another, and Hinduism another, and Buddhism yet another. Listen, it is the, it is the American high religion that most people, most people, even yes, even most people in our conservative fair town of Tulsa believe. But friends, it is not the gospel. It is very easy to follow the majority of people through the wide gate. But what Jesus says in John 14, 6 is he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Two exclusive religions can't both be right. So which is it? If you're tempted, if you're tempted to just make peace with the world, like there's nothing wrong with enjoying good philosophical conversation. I hope that you do. I, I really do too. But when you say to yourself, but, uh, but, uh, but don't challenge me. Don't try, to, don't try to persuade me. And you become endlessly self-justifying. Then Jesus can't ever change you. There are many overt enemies that we face. And in the world, we have a very clear distinction to make. As Christians, we walk a narrow road, which means that the way you spend your money should be different. Which means the way you practice hospitality should be different. The way that you dress should be different. The way that you respect other people should be different. The way that you argue, yes, even argue, should be different. The way that you think about the world should be different. Why? Because you see through a lens of the cross of Jesus Christ. It's not that you just become a Christian and then you have the social acceptable card to use in conversations in Oklahoma. You see the entirety of the world differently. Is that true of you? Are you on the narrow way?
Have you passed through the narrow gate? There are overt enemies out there. And some people will say, well, listen, like, believing in Jesus, believing in the gospel, it's just, like, it's so narrow. How could you possibly? No, it's not. It's like the broadest possible way you could believe. It's not narrow. Listen, Jesus in John chapter 4, he broke every cultural barrier there was. He went to Jacob's well and met a woman from Sychar. She was a Samaritan. And Jesus, you want to talk about breaking glass ceilings, Jesus went and spoke. He crossed racial boundaries. He spoke to a Samaritan. They were half-breeds that the Jews thought were dogs. He broke the racial barrier. You're progressive. Okay, Jesus was more progressive. He broke the cultural barrier. He had no problem entering into the world of a Samaritan to speak with her. He broke the gender barrier. She was a woman. He broke the spiritual barrier. She was a sinner. Many husbands. So you want to talk about narrow. Okay. But Jesus was broad. He loved people that were different than he was. He was not afraid to break boundaries. And yet, at the same time, Jesus was the very Son of God. And he poses to you a very important question. Do you trust only in him for your salvation? So don't give me this excuse of, listen, like Christianity is too narrow. Of course it is, because Jesus is the only one who could keep the law perfectly. But Jesus' love extends far beyond your wildest imaginations, and it will push you to go and talk to that neighbor that you've never met down the street this week. He will push you to view hospitality different. He will push you to lay down your life. He will push you to say that my life is not just like the world's, except I have a thank you God on the end of it. He'll push you to actually say, do you really believe this is true? Because friends, this world we live in is vapor. And we will spend eternity with him. The sacrifices that we have opportunities to make are so small in comparison. But the way is hard because it requires repentance. There are not only overt enemies in the world and in the secular philosophies that face us. There are covert enemies. Jesus knew very well, in fact, that the most dangerous enemies to the church were not outside of it. They were within it. The most dangerous enemies in the church are not outside of the church. They are within it. Jesus gives two metaphors here. He gives the metaphor of wolves, then he gives the metaphor of false prophets. Let's look at the covert enemies. The wolves in verses 15 to 19. Listen, they are true in life, but they are wrong in message. Jesus says that you will know these wolves by their fruits. He says, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. They're going to look just, they're going to look great. They're going to use the same lingo. They're going to be able to appeal to you. But they are ravenous wolves, and you will know them by their fruits. So what are their fruits? How do you know if someone is 
a wolf in sheep's clothing. Now, I don't mean a hypocrite. That'd be like a goat in sheep's clothing. We'd all be a goat. I mean a wolf. You don't look at one period of somebody's life and therefore deduce the truth about them in an instant. One night, even a series of evenings. You look at their totality of their life. You look at the cadence and the tenor of their life over swaths of time. You look at their track record. That is how you know the fruit of someone who is in Christ. And even that can be deceptive, can't it? So how do you really know if a sheep is a wolf or a sheep is a sheep? How do you know that? Well, let me give you some very clear criteria. Number one, what do they say of Jesus? The clarion call of someone who is a sheep and not a wolf is that they believe in the two natures of Jesus Christ. They believe he is fully human and he is fully divine. If you listen well with the people who end up over time leading people astray, being a wolf in sheep's clothing, even though they are within the church, they underemphasize either his humanity and thus do not emphasize the heinousness of sin, downplay your need to be holy, or they will downplay his divinity and therefore say, well, Jesus is therefore just a good example. Just follow his example. You don't need to be atoned for your sin. That is so like, ancient and tribal self-sacrifice. We're modern people. But sheeps, who are really sheeps, hold these two things together. Jesus is fully human and he is fully divine. And you must keep them because Jesus, as a human being, must be able to rightly represent us before his Father. And as fully divine, he must be able to pay the infinite debt we owe for our sin. Jesus is both God and man. And that is what the wolves will first deny, that he is both God but not man, or he is man but not God. That's one very simple criteria. What do they make of Jesus? In the second century, there was a, a man by the name of Marcion who downplayed the Old Testament, the judgmental wrath of God, and said, Jesus isn't, God is not wrathful. He's not judgmental. He's just loving. And so Marcion raised up this amazing, beautiful doctrine of the love of God, which we talk a lot about here, and said that is what is primal. That is the only thing God is. He is love. 1 Corinthians 13, haven't you read it? That is the embodiment of God. But what Marcion did is he downplayed, therefore, the need for us to actually follow the commands of God. And God just loves everybody. He's going to save everybody. There's no need for God to talk. There's no need for judgment. Why? And the early church, the early church within a couple of centuries of Jesus' death knew immediately that was outside the realm of Christianity and they excised Marcion from the church. They weren't trying to be mean. They were trying to save his life because he began to overemphasize Jesus' humanity over his deity. It is very easy in Tulsa, Oklahoma to see lots of examples of ministers because there's a church on every corner in this town. But we must be discerning Christians who at the same time are able to be encouraging to other brothers and sisters who may not fully agree with us on everything, and that's okay. They, they, they are believers. 
But at the same time, recognize where somebody leaves Orthodox Christianity and have the nuance and the grace and be adept enough to be able to talk to them in a helpful, beautiful way about what the gospel is and isn't. It's very important. We are not the gatekeepers. Listen, listen. You don't have to be like the theological gatekeeper of your neighborhood, but you do need to be the most loving person in your neighborhood. And sometimes that love compels you to help people see the truth. You must be, therefore, willing to love them well. One of the criteria is that they downplay the two natures of Christ. John 10, 1 and 2 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter this, this sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Tertullian once said that discipleship is an index of your doctrine. Hmm? Is that true of you? We believe in the gospel. It is true in every single way. Does your life reflect that? Luther feared that because there were so many wolves amongst sheep in the Reformation, Luther was deathly. He had a, he had a lot of neuroses, as many people do. But one of the things he was really worried about was he was concerned, kept him up at night, that one just one sermon could overthrow the entirety of the Protestant Reformation because wolves tend to look so much like sheep. Jesus goes on here to explain the false prophets. He says, look, not only are there wolves, but there are miracle workers. There are miracle workers. Look with me. It says in verse 20, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, verse 22, many, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. If if a wolf is someone who is true in life but wrong in message, then a false prophet would be somebody who is true in message but wrong in life. Listen, this, these people come to Jesus and they use the same language that we do. Lord, Lord, Kyrios, Kyrios, Jesus, Lord, Sir, Sir. They pray. They exercise demons out of people. They prophesied in Jesus' name. This verse should scare you. It's possible to, to know all the lingo of the Christian life and to never really know Jesus personally. It's possible for you to, to have the gospel so securely in your head that it never makes it those infinite inches to your heart. And here, these miracle workers said, listen, Jesus, we did all of these good works for you. And Jesus says to them, I don't even know your name. Your name is not in the Lamb's Book of Life. How can that be? I want you to notice something if we're going to build a criteria for how to recognize wolves and false prophets. One is the twofold nature of Jesus. He is both human 
and he's divine. Please stay with me, it's very important. The second, and this is very, very important in our area, especially in a conservative world like we live in, false prophets tend to be very sensational. What do I mean by that? They tend to take the extraordinary things and make them ordinary and downplay the ordinary things. These false prophets, listen, Jesus came to them. What were the first things they said? Miracles, prophecies, boom, bang, shiny glitter. This is like, these are the things that we did for you. And oftentimes, you sometimes recognize people by their fruit when they downplay the ordinary means of grace and they overemphasize the extraordinary works of the Holy Spirit. Now, indeed, there are extraordinary works of the Holy Spirit that are beautiful and amazing works, but they are extraordinary. They are not ordinary. And these false prophets made the sensational seem like the ordinary. And the problem with that is it makes ordinary people like you and me feel extremely guilty because it's like we don't really, like we aren't walking with Jesus or our health and our relationship with Jesus isn't very strong because we're not having these great visions. That's very dangerous. Do people believe in the twofold nature of Christ? Do they emphasize the sensational over the ordinary? Notice, too, what these miracle workers also drew attention to. Jesus... What did they say when they saw Jesus? Like the first thing they did was they unrolled their resumes for Jesus. Lord, Lord, did we not do these amazing things? They are so self-aware of their holiness. You notice that? Do you know what is so corrupting about the church? Is that when people come to our churches and they leave and they never come back, oftentimes it's because People who are so self-aware of their holiness, they're just no fun to be around. And Jesus knows, and the disciples are learning that when somebody comes into the presence of Jesus, you don't unroll your resume because it's not impressive to Jesus. You fall on your face in repentance and adoration of him. And you say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Thank you that you call me your own because of your work for me. <clears throat> I want us as a church to walk in a spirit of holiness that is contagious and that is beautiful and that is very apparent. But I do not want us to be self-aware about that holiness. I want us to be aware of Jesus and his holiness. And over time, you actually will find yourself to become more authentic, more legit, living a more honest life because you see yourself as you really are. You're not constantly attesting your moral self-righteousness. Jesus here, friends, is trying to land the plane of his sermon. He's trying to conclude his sermon by showing you that there are overt enemies, the world that tempts you to believe that your righteousness is what you need to earn God's favor. But there's a narrow way, repentance. Faith alone that establishes your relationship with Jesus and not only establishes it, but keeps you forever because he is the one that's holding on to you. And there are covert enemies. There are sheep, there are wolves in sheep's clothing. There are false prophets. They use all the right lingo, all the right terminology, but they do not 
show you the beauty of Jesus. They make much of themselves and not much of Jesus. And that is what a false prophet does. And lastly, Jesus says in verses 24 to 27, not only are there overt enemies, covert enemies, but there are inverted enemies, the self. Many, many months ago, we began this whole sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount with a sermon called Two Houses, Two Men and Two Houses. And it was about two men in these verses who built identical houses. Could you tell them apart? Not at all. Are you with me? Two identical houses, same identical view, same identical brickwork, same identical molding. There was one difference. One of these houses was built on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and one of these houses was built on the moral self-effort of the man who built that house. And you could not tell the difference of those two houses until the storm came. And one of those houses fell, and Jesus says, and the fall was very great. And one of those houses withstood the storm. The first part, the covert enemies, is the gospel to those of us who are secular, who are liberal, who do not profess the name of Christ. And it is a challenge of evangelism for you. Yes, it is. Jesus is evangelistic at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and he's saying you must make a choice, either the narrow gate or the wide gate. There is not a third choice for you. But he's also preaching the gospel to those who are in the church. There are covert enemies within the church. Do you trust in your own moral self-righteousness, your own moral record-keeping, or do you trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ? The difference is the difference between heaven and hell. And as one man has said it, hell will be full of religious people because they made much of themselves and they did not make much of Jesus. And then there's an inverted enemy, our own tendencies to please God and please others and be so concerned with whether they like us that we give our life for the sake of their approval. And we don't even think, care about the one who created us and made us in his image. Friends, the greatest temptation for us to fight is the fight of the flesh. And we must grow more and more self-aware of our tendencies to revert back to our self-saving strategies of life. When Jesus calls you, when he calls you to himself, it becomes, the gospel becomes beautiful. The other shoe drops. This sermon concludes with a call to decision. In the first book of the Narnia series, C.S. Lewis writes of when Pauly and Diggory finally get to Narnia, and he writes this about Aslan. He says, Aslan threw up his shaggy head and opened his mouth, and he uttered a long single note, not very loud, but full of power. And Polly's heart jumped in her body when she heard it. She felt sure that it was a call, that anyone who heard that call would want to obey it, and what's more, would be able to obey it however many worlds and ages lay in between. The Sermon on the Mount, friends, is one long clarion call that your self-righteousness 
is not the ticket. And that Jesus' righteousness is the only way that you can come into a right relationship with him. Indeed, it is the only way you can begin to live the Christian life when you recognize that you cannot live up to his holy standards. And then, in light of that, you're able to obey God's word in a way not only that once intimidated you, but now in a way that's possible because Christ lives in you. Do you know the gospel? I know, you know, I know you've heard the gospel many times, but do you appropriate it? Are you willing to do so? Whether you are secular, whether you are religious, whether you are just independent, all three of these metaphors of the gates, of the fruits, of the houses bring you to a point of decision. Run to King Jesus. See him as the one who teaches with authority, not like your scribes. And see him, even in this very room, high and lifted up, speaking to you in very personal ways, driving you to repent of that sin. Yes, even that one. He wants you. He longs for you to be holy like he is holy. Will you allow him to be such? He doesn't need your permission. Oh, Lord, would you make us willing as your people to trust you. Father, we pray that you would take the weight of the Sermon on the Mount, and that you would help us to trust not in our own self-effort, but to trust in your perfect record of righteousness. You sound one long, single note in this sermon. Would you help us, Lord Christ, to recognize that what we need the most is to make much of Jesus, to make much of you, and to grow in self-forgetfulness, and to see that you are worth it, to see that you are greater than we could ever imagine, and to run to you in obedience. Help us to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.